Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, the Maltose Falcons are turning 50 in 2024. Plenty of time to plan out some fun beers in the club's memory. The club is starting with an Imperial Porter Braggot, brewed with Brian Avery at Bravery Brewing in Lancaster, California. I sat down with Brian to discuss the beer mead thingy and understand what goes into his ideas of a big barrel-aged project beer. But first, a message from our sponsors. Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to 5 gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Now through August 31st, boost your brewing IQ with a free book when you join or renew your American Homebrewers Association membership. Choose from three books by some of the best brewing educators. Ray Daniels' Designing Great Beers, The Ultimate Guide to Brewing Classic Beer Styles, or from Stan Hieronymus, Brewing Local, American Grown Beer, or For the Love of Hops, The Practical Guide to Aroma, Bitterness, and the Culture of Hops. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to redeem this limited time offer. So, what's the name of the criminal? Uh, this is Slowhand. Mm, Slowhand. Yeah, I will do the job. Just what, flaked corn and pale, or two row flaked corn, and I think a pinch of uh, it's either Vienna or Munich. I'd have to look at the recipe. Uh, just it just give it a little extra ish. Yeah, right, a little from the mid body. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I know today's not a hot day, but it's still it's still relatively <laughs> warm. So it's a good drop to have on a hot day. Yeah. Can't believe it's October. So yes, as we're recording this, it's October 1st, but we're not here to talk about cream ale. We're here to talk about something that is in a great many ways the antithesis of a cream ale. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Brian, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Brian Avery. I'm co-owner and director of brewing operations here at Bravery Brewing up in Lancaster, California. For everybody who is not LA geography-minded, geography uh, Lancaster is about as far away in the Upper north of LA County, you can get like the last major city here before you. Yeah. Once you go past us, you're into Kern County. And desert. 
lots of desert. We are here gathered together to do a God, that almost sounded like I was starting to do a wedding vow, but we're gathered here together to make a beer. But very importantly, this is we're coming up on the Falcons' 50th anniversary as a club, which is terrifying. I do not know how this club has managed to survive for that long. The other thing I, I keep thinking about is that also means it's now been 25 years since I've been in the club. That's wild. Yeah. In order to celebrate that properly, the club is going to race around LA County and other places uh, to do collaboration beers with various breweries to you know have on tap for the whole 50th anniversary. We're thinking you know, the, the project may be not only have beer at the party, but also to have beer at a bar and have like a, a, a night when it's Nothing but the Falcons collaboration beers. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, be. So obviously, since that's still nearly two years out, we got to start strong. And that's where we're starting with you. So we are making a bracket. Yes, we are. Now, have you ever made a bracket here before? I have not made a bracket. I've brewed with honey before, but not in a quantity that I would be comfortable using the term bracket to describe it as. Honey infused, but not braggadish. Yeah, exactly. And just to lay the groundwork for everybody, so you guys have been open now for, has it been 10 years? It, 10 years uh, this July, yeah. yeah. Okay, so 10 years. And you actually still maintain color. I mean, even though we're sitting here drinking a cream ale, you actually still maintain color in your tap list, unlike a lot of modern breweries where you go and everything's like between 2 and 5 SRM. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you're the only place I've been recently that has an entire column of the tap list devoted to nothing but strong dark ales. Absolutely. And you also have one of my favorite... I hate to say it's a throwback, but it really is kind of a throwback with the uh, the gunny as like a big American strong, like arrogant bastard, but not arrogant bastard. Exactly. Yeah. Far less schnook, more drinkable. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's all just to lay the groundwork that making something this big, this gnarly, this oomphtastical is not out of your wheelhouse. It is somewhat in your wheelhouse. I would say so. Yeah. Walk me through. Well, actually, first let's let's set the expectations for people who don't know. Braggot is basically a beer and mead combination, sort of a hybrid thing. Not quite a beer, not quite a mead. It is how much honey are you, are we putting in this, like percentage wise? Well, so it's kind of interesting because we're doing a work share today. So um, I think about ten members are taking home work. So we're looking at what roughly um, 50, gallons. fifty gallons of work going away, which which is to our benefit because that's going to increase our honey to wort ratio. We are putting in just shy of 200 pounds of honey into the uh, batch today. We're making probably about 12 to 13 barrels of wort's going to end up in that fermenter before the wort share dilution. So I would say it's going to be somewhere between like 15 to 20% honey. So it's going to be pretty substantial. I mean, again, it's not like 50-50. Because one of the things I've noticed in the past is with some braggots is they end up tasting like the more honey there is in it. Which, of course, robs a lot of the back end. Mm -hmm. The more the beer ends up tasting kind of like mushroom barley soup, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better way of putting it. Like, it starts to get a kind of weird, funky earthiness to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so this one, we are doing a lot of honey, but it's not like 50% of the fermentables. Right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, probably talked hours about this, but I think that, you know, barley wants to become beer. And I think that that's why most beers are made with barley. And I, I think there's so many structural mouthfeel uh, elements that are coming from the barley itself. So that once you get to a point where there isn't enough barley in the beer, uh, some 
strange things can happen. And obviously, like wheat beers and, and stuff like that are great beers, but you know, wheat is in the same family there with barley. But yeah, if we're talking about like diluting the beer with honey or some other kind of simple sugar, I, I would imagine you would start getting pretty far away from like it being a beer at that point. I'll always remind listeners that you know, these days we have all these sort of Procrustean style guidelines and you know ideas around what a beverage is. Historically speaking, our ancestors had no such qualms about, well, we got some honey over here, we got some grass over there, and we got some uh, additional sugar over here. Let's all put it together. Yeah, grapes, sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah, so this is still kind of a, a hybrid, but you know, it's not all that out of character historically. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the base beer? So the base beer, I would say, can it most likely resemble a stout, but a stout with uh, very limited roastiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if you wanted to call it like an imperial porter or something like that, um, getting into the semantics. So we're doing a foundation of Maris Otter, leveling in different layers of caramel malts, and then bringing in color via a pale and regular chocolate malt. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely going to be that that bitter chocolate going into like espresso notes, but it's not going to have the sharp kind of roast character that you would expect from a traditional stout. All right. So now without the honey in it, how big are we talking? I think it would come somewhere between 10 and 11% if we just let it do its thing on its own. Uh, so I think with this honey addition, we're going to be approaching close to 13% probably. And then depending upon how wet the bourbon barrels are, this will go into maybe pick up an additional percent. So yeah, I, uh, lately we've been getting close to like two percentage point. <laughs> increase from the Ooh. barrels yeah so in other words this is going to be a beer that's going to be poured in small quantities yes so a little will go a long way with this beer now imperial uh, imperial porter as a starting thing you said okay we got chris maris otter looking at the recipe here what else do we have munich type one wireman so give a little extra body to it a little breadiness you've got two different caramel malts in here right so you got 60 and 80 mm-hmm. why 60 and 80 why or why not just one or the other um we've definitely been playing around with that some of my beers that just have a single crystal malt it's typically 60 when we're talking about a beer like this with the two and a half hour boil that we're doing today and really kind of it's only getting a uh, initial bittering charge from the hops, mm-hmm. so the malt is doing all the talking with this beer. I feel like the 60 and the 80 together is just going to kind of help fill a broader spectrum of the dried fruit to kind of caramel uh, flavors. So kind of more fresh caramel with the, the 60 and then starting to get into some more, not quite the sort of big pruny, plummy, raisiny thing that you have a special bee, but heading that way. Yeah. And then you said the two different chocolate malts. Now, I love pale chocolate. You, I mean, are you using the pale chocolate because you want that color but not the bite? That, that's kind of how I always think of pale chocolate is that you get a lot of character to it from color-wise, but you don't get that acrid back note. Exactly. And so that's why we're, we're stopping it at... There is an addition of some black malt in there, but that's where we're ending it. And I believe... Yeah, so it's getting equal parts of pale chocolate, regular chocolate, and black malt. A, to establish that that color, I do want this to be in that SRM range where you're looking at it and it does have the, the appearance of a stout. And focusing more so on chocolate flavors and having that really kind of saturate in there. And so ch- just trying to ensure that I'm getting that spectrum of chocolate mm-hmm. from the pale all the way up to the black. Well, and I'm looking at it here at the notes and it's what a little almost 8% of chocolate, or actually almost 9% of 
a roasted malt. When you guys are doing your dark beers, do you do you typically go that high, like up to that nine ten percent level? Um, when they're this big, and then they're going to age for a year, we can go a little heavier with those roasted malts, knowing that um, the barrel and the the gentle oxidation is going to kind of smooth that out a bit. And I'm guessing what just a single infusion mash, right? Yeah, a kettle volume of eighteen barrels. So a little bit bigger than a Harbor system. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned, okay, one hop charge. Yeah. And you're using a hop that I've been seeing more and more recently. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it kind of came and then went and nobody sort of dealt with it. Now I'm starting to see more of it. Bravo. Yeah. Why use Bravo? And I know it's big alpha acid. Is it just because you want a big alpha acid charge? Yeah. Bra- Bravo is more or less our workhorse bittering hop. Um, I would say somewhere around 80% of all of our recipes uh, are using Bravo as the bittering hop. You know, when we're doing something like a German Hefeweizen or a Kolsch, we'll use a more traditional noble or noble style hop. But yeah, by and large, just as far as uh, bang for buck and keeping things simple with our recipe formulation, Bravo does all the, the bittering around here. Uh, and relatively inexpensive too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Never discount cost. <laughs> all right. And then the, the honey, uh, on the recipe here, you're saying 180 pounds. And I think you were saying a little bit larger earlier because now we have more room, right? Yeah. So what sort of honey are we using? Uh, so we are using that one. I was thinking about a little thinking about this recipe. So we are actually going to use an orange blossom honey, which I think might sound a little counterintuitive going into a big stout, but something that I'm always doing with our barrel aged beers is, you know, putting out a good intention, but then not knowing what's going to happen until the barrel has its way with the beer for a year. Well, that's the problem with barrels. Barrels will always be, oh, you thought you were doing this? No, sir. Yeah. What my thought is, you know, so we'll have, we'll have this beer come out. It'll, it'll be what it's going to be. But then something we always like to do is depending on what kind of notes we're sussing out of the beer is kind of coax it in that direction. So if there is by any chance, any kind of citrus note, or if the barrel itself is having any kind of like a vanilla component coming through, I would love to then further add maybe some like orange zest and vanilla bean to this beer as like a side treatment. So we'll see what happens. I'm really curious to see what the honey's going to do and what what it's going to if it's going to stand out still um I think it'll definitely impact the body and the, the mouthfeel of this beer but as far as aromatics and flavor we'll we'll just have to see next year. Now is the and the honey's not going in until until after primary, right? Yeah, so it's going to go in probably about starting 72 hours from now or so. Right now the wort that's uh, that's coming out of the boil kettle and going into the fermenter that's just going to be the straight grain wort. No additional sugar to it, so that's our imperial porter base, so yep. to speak. And that's going to be what the club members are taking away today to, to play with. And then that honey goes in after the fermentation has sort of chewed through most of the sugar and the yeast are sort of still raring to go and haven't started to go bed by. Yeah. And how are you actually going to introduce that honey in there? Because you got in a, you got the beer in the tank, you got the honey in, what, a tote? Yeah, it's in, uh, it's in big like food-grade pails. Uh, so we'll, we'll be making hot water baths to, uh, get the honey primed and we're actually doing it over three days. So we have three pails conveniently that the honey came in. So each day we'll get a pail and that's just to, you know, hopefully not, uh, shock the yeast or trick them into transitioning into only eating the simple sugars at this point. So over the, over the three days, starting 72 hours from now, each day we'll get a pail of honey and, uh, just going to be sitting up there keeping a, a blanket of uh, CO2 coming into the tank. Oh, we're, we're literally bucket brigading the honey. We are gonna, yeah, we're going to forklift the honey up to the top and drop it down to the top. 
Any concerns about it mixing or you figure that it's just going to... I think at that point, there's still going to be enough active fermentation that, um, and it's, it'll be dripping at like such a, you know, kind of trickle-ish rate that uh, I, I don't think we'll have any issues, but we'll also probably go and rouse from the bottom too after we get the honey in there. Like blow some CO2 through it. Yeah, yeah. It's everybody's favorite dry hopping trick these days too, right? Exactly, yeah. Hops in the top, wait, rouse the top. <laughs> And I didn't ask before, what yeast are we using? Uh, we are using White Labs 001 Cali Ale. Good, good old Cali. Which has a fair alcohol tolerance. It's a steady and reliable fermenter. So yeah, uh, so it should be able to chew through this, one hopes. Yeah, one hopes. <laughs> After we get the honey in over the course of three days, how much longer do you, do you assume it will take to do the ferment? I think after the third day... I mean, we're, we're checking the gravity every day, but I would assume that we're going to probably hit terminal maybe three or four days after that. So, I mean, all told, we're talking the primary fermentation being done in about a week. Yeah. And then I know this is not going to be a fast turnaround beer. This isn't one of the ones where you're like, all right, now we got to cold crash it, clear it, and get it ready to go into the bright tank to, to carbonate and serve to the guests. Mm-hmm. So we got a week of primary. Uh, what's the after treatment there? Uh, so once we establish that we're at terminal gravity... Uh, we're going to cold crash it, let it hang out for about 48 hours, mostly subtle clear. We're not terribly worried about it being crystal clear. Um, and once we get all of our yeast flocculated and trubed down at the bottom, then we'll, we'll rack it over into bourbon barrels. We have six wild turkey brand bourbon barrels waiting to get filled. Is all the beer going to go into the bourbon? I'm anticipating a little bit left over, and we'll, uh, we'll keg that off and force carb it, and then... Well, yeah, because I mean, it would be kind of fun to see the difference, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and then also, too, see see what the honey's doing before it goes into the long slumber in the bourbon barrels. And so you said wild turkey. Uh, wild turkey was my dad's bourbon of choice. So I always, always have a soft spot in my heart for it, even if I'm not a whiskey drinker. How long How long do you think in the barrels? A year? Yeah, most likely a year. Uh, minimum nine months, but it'll most likely be 12. And then when you're doing... The beer in the barrels. I know a lot of people just think like, oh, you just fit the beer in the barrel and you walk away from it. You don't pay any attention to it again. What are you guys doing during that year to maintain the barrels? Are you, I assume, are we doing any topping up? Or are we... We actually... Um, or do you just leave the barrels? We actually leave our barrels alone. When the barrels arrive, I know some people do a rinse or do other things to condition their barrels. I know some people who just pour out the whiskey that's in the barrels and enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, we actually, we don't do anything with our barrels. We we bring them in. The only thing that we do is uh, a hot water t- uh, table. And so basically put boiling water on one side as they're standing up vertically and ensure that that head isn't going to leak. And then the next day, flip it over, do the same thing on the other head. You're just trying to swell the members on the head side. Yeah. And um, every once in a while, we'll get a barrel that doesn't pass the test and better to find out then before we start filling it with beer and it's leaking out the head. But yeah, then we'll just, uh, we'll knock out the wooden bungs that they come shipped with and we purge it for about 20 minutes of CO2 and then we rack the beer in. If I remember correctly, looking in the brewery, you had a lot of silicone bungs Mm -hmm. uh, sitting on top of those barrels. So yeah, over the course of the year, you're going to pick up a lot of the oak characters. Obviously, all the whiskey will go in there. You had kind of hinted at it a little bit, but you know, if you go and you look at the tap board right now, your Russian Imperial Stout that you have on, which my brain is now blanking on the, the name of. Uh, the Shroud. The Shroud. There you go. <sighs> you have multiple variants of the Shroud, like multiple different treatments. Yeah. I mean, kind of said something towards this line of like looking at what's happening out of the barrel. Do you anticipate having multiple treatments of this coming out of the barrel on the other side? or Potentially. Again, it just... it. 
depends on what it's going to start doing. You know, another thing we might do too is at the nine month marker, pull some samples from the barrels and see what it's doing. Cause I mean, if at nine months, if it's tasting amazing, you know, you're just running the risk of it getting worse at that point. A little bit of oxidation damage, a little bit, who knows what's in the barrel. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if at nine months it tastes amazing, we'll pull it. Most cases we just let it keep going. But at that point we might get an idea of where it's going. And like I was saying, you know, the potential addition of vanilla or even uh, some kind of citrus zest. But another thing we do as well is if we identify a barrel that is maybe, maybe seems like it's going to need a little extra time, we might segregate a barrel or a rack of two barrels and say, we're going to give this one a year and a half or two years to, to keep doing its thing. Or um, something we're starting to play with now too is doing double barrel treatments and either racking those barrels into a new set of bourbon or um, right now we have a batch of beer that we aged in bourbon barrels and then re-racked into Isla Scotch, uh, some VSOP cognac barrels, and some other bourbon barrels. So that'll be a little series of double barrel-aged beers coming out next year. So we got smoky, boozy, and double whiskey. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, and so we've got that going. Oh, and I should ask, since you said, hey, you know, those are new barrels, do you only ever use barrels basically once for a beer? You, you're kind of treating them like almost like a bourbon. Yeah. We only use the virgin barrels. Well, by virgin, we mean they've been used for spirits once, but virgin beer. Yeah. And do you do that just because you're you're not necessarily, you're not getting the characters you want out of the second run or out of maybe concerns about what happens with the, the second beer that goes in there and like any additional microbial load or, you know, like are those the motivators then? That, mostly, yeah. All those together. Um, I would hate to waste perfectly good beer to come to find out nine months later that, you know, there were contaminants in the barrel um, or to spend all that time and then find out that, okay, cool. It got some nice oxidation and it got some Oak character, but all of the, the bourbon had been zapped from the first batch. So we, uh, we know what we like and it's a touch bit more expensive to use new barrels every time, but it's kind of tried and true. At the end of the day, when you're looking at like the total batch cost, mm-hmm. like new barrels aren't necessarily a huge expense, particularly since you can you can charge a, a premium for the the beer at that point. Exactly, we've got that going. So we're anticipating probably about well, I mean, so if we're talking nine months plus a month, we probably see the earliest we would see this beer would probably be next August. Yeah, the earliest. Yeah, yeah, and in reality, probably more like hey, now next year. Yeah. Most likely. And then it will have some time to age. And of course, this will hold perfectly well until then. And you know, it's funny because you mentioned the orange and the vanilla. And what that reminds me of is um, Third Window. They have that orange stout. It was a walkabout. I love Third Window. I have not had that beer, though. There's a sort of not quite pastry stout, but it's an imperial orange stout that tastes like one of those uh, British chocolate oranges. Oh, yeah. Like you smash. Yeah, yeah the, you smash. And, and Really, really tasty. Really well done. So I, I can see why you, why your brain with the orange boss money starts to get dragged in that particular direction. Yeah, yeah. And when it's done well, it can work really well. If the orange character comes off the wrong way, then it tastes like you're drinking grandmother's perfume. <laughs> but I, realistically, we're talking about, okay, we got brew day today. Then we got the weird, uh, the weird addition of the honey, and and again, you said you're basically just topping it up in the tank and then rousing, mm-hmm. and then into the barrels, and and for that period of time, aging. Any other things that people should be aware when they're if they're going to try and tackle something like this at home? Because we'll include the recipe on the website. Yeah, I mean the the things that go for any beer. You know, when you're brewing a beer this this high in alcohol, you got to make sure you're getting plenty of O2 into your wort. 
you know, don't worry about over pitching. You're going to definitely need all all the yeast cells in there that you can possibly get. Are we taking off of another cone? Yeah. So this is a uh, second generation, actually from a fresh batch of uh, slow hand that's in the fermenter right now. So that works out. And um, for us, water chemistry is always something we're thinking about. We have a reverse osmosis filter next door. So we're basically building all of our water from scratch. I'm always learning new things. I don't think anyone knows everything that there is to know about water. It's very confusing. Yeah. And it's it's very easy to overthink it too, which... Well, um, and plus, I mean, given that we're here in Southern California, and particularly up here in the high desert, the water that's coming out, out of your taps, if you were just to use tap water, is ever-changing and weird. That was the biggest reason why when we built our production facility out about five and a half years ago, I was like, we have to put RO in there because... There's zero consistency with our water source here. Yeah, I mean, I get a little more consistency down where I'm at because I think we get way more blending. But since you guys are really right off the aqueduct, yeah, and you guys don't have as many wells, yeah, I do have to ask a question because I noticed right right behind the what is it, fifteen barrel brew house? Mm-hmm. Right behind the fifteen barrel brew house, there's still a homebrew rig. There is, and it, it's covered in some dust right now, which I'm a little shameful of. But uh, yeah, it's my 20-gallon more beer tippy dump. I was going to say, it's an old-school uh, more beer system. Mm-hmm. How long has that been around? Um, I must have bought that close to 15 years ago, give or take. When's the last time you think it got used? Uh, so when we first opened Bravery, we started on a three-barrel brew house, <laughs> and uh, which was insane. And so I was actually using the tippy dump to do a lot of recipe formulation and then also just kind of supplement our tap list because there would be days where we would have three or four beers on tap because uh, demand was definitely outweighing the supply. I have big dreams of firing it up again because... As rudimentary as that system is, it has a lot of uh, fun controls with the mash and whatnot. And so you could do step mashes and whatnot with it. And um, I would love to kind of do Lambic-esque brewing with it one day when I have free time, whenever that happens. I was going to say, that never happens in a brewery owner's life. Yeah. So I think it's amusing to still see like that initial history hanging out Mm -hmm. back there. Uh, I joke around with the fact I still have my original, uh, the original pot that I used as a mash kettle hanging up in the... In the brewery shelves, just to, with a little label on it. Yeah. Because, you know, I think last time I used it was probably about eight years ago for some sort of weird little side project. But it still stays up there just to just yeah, go, hey, that's how this started. It's great. It's history. All right. Anything else we need to know about the recipe? I think we more or less covered it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're talking, this is going to be, you know, just the beer-wise, we're talking 11 to 10, uh, 11 to 12, uh, 12%. Or, or actually, and then with the honey up to 14%, and then with the barrel... 15 to 16 so yeah possibly yeah uh, yeah so this is definitely going to be a short pour beer which will be good again big imperial porter the honey will have an interesting effect i think to see like how it undercuts the body on the back end Mm -hmm. it's almost in a way it's almost like the the anti-pastry stout yeah a lot of flavor but no thickness Mm -hmm. so that'll be cool to see so again thank you for hosting the the first of the Falcons' uh, collaborations, I, I hope the rest of the gang hasn't drunk you guys out of the house and home. They've been trying, but I think we're okay. And I would recommend to listeners not only to give this a try, and obviously you can play around with the levels of honey, keeping in mind that the more honey that you add, the more wine-esque the characters are. Mm-hmm. I think the most successful version of a bracket I ever made was one that I made with Tupelo honey, and I used as the base beer a an American wheat beer style. Oh. I made like an American wheat wine and then added honey to it. Because a lot of the ones I've seen in the past where, you know, traditionally a lot of people will do a barley wine. Yeah. They'll do a barley wine base. 
and then mix with honey. And that's the ones where I've always gotten kind of that mushroom soup type thing. Interesting. This one, I'll be curious if the additions of the black malt and all those chocolate malts, mm-hmm. if those don't kind of push some of that off to the side and, and avoid that character. And also, I mean, we're talking a different amount of honey, too. Yeah. Braggots are fun. And particularly if you've got a big enough system where you can do like an Imperial Stout or Imperial Reporter and take off one batch size and have enough left over to be able to have, say, a half a batch, then you can blend in the honey mm-hmm. and you basically get two shots out of one beer. Yeah. Yeah. So in this particular case, we're doing it all as Braggot. But keep that in mind, uh, at the homebrew level, you can always play around and do something extra. Obviously, you're talking about playing around and doing something extra on the back end. Yeah. And you know, having some additional flavors. And I would highly recommend to everybody, go play with some honey. I know honey's expensive, but it's worth it. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at the first of what promises to be many, many Falcons commemorative beer meads thingies. What would you do to commemorate 50 years? What have been your braggity experiences? Let me know. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the Pongo Fund, a food bank for pets in need. Give those pets some food. Now, until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.